So today we're going to try to tackle the entire chapter of Romans 12. Um, if you remember back to when Scott came, I think he's come twice, but it was like back at the very beginning. He taught us that there's two different ways to approach God's word. One is to just um, approach it as a whole, trying to get a grasp on it just as a whole. And he likened that to flying over a piece of land and kind of getting a, an idea of the layout of the land. Maybe he used that illustration here too. And then the other way was just to dig in and get some of the details of um, like just really studying really in detail scripture. And that would be like going, taking a walk through that same piece of land, but this time just looking at the trees and the grass and the color of the flowers. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to try to sort of like approach this with this with two different approaches. We're going to fly over Romans 12, but we're going to like kind of touch down sometimes and look around. So if you feel like all right, we just kind of read that verse. Well, it's probably just, that's what we, we, we have time for. But I just want it to be almost like a resource for you guys to remember Romans 12 has so much for us for how we interact with the body of Christ and how we can serve. All right, well, Romans 12 has between 27 and 33 imperatives. Imperatives are commands. And the reason I'm giving you a, a range of numbers is because some commentators would group things together, like the very last um, verse in Romans 12 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So some people would say, well, that's one command. But if you like separate out every single phrase that's a command, there's 33 of them. And by way of contrast, there are just eight statements of fact. So a statement of fact is just like a little sentence or a phrase that tells you a truth that might explain something. And if you think back Romans 1 to 11, that's been almost all statements of fact. We've just gotten a lot of information, things that are true. So interesting that there's 33 commands in one chapter and then eight statements of fact. Um, so that just means there is a lot for us to hear and a lot for us to take to heart and to put into practice. So the good thing about that is if you're like me, you might find yourself in a situation sometimes where you think, I just wish someone would tell me what to do. So if you find yourself in that situation, especially in maybe a relationship within the body of Christ, um, might just turn to Romans 12, because God might have already directly spoken about the situation that you're in. So this chapter breaks up into three sections pretty naturally. And as I was studying this, I was struck by an observation as I came to like just the whole the entirety of the chapter. There was something that I observed and... It's just that in Romans 12, the manner of living that God desires and commands for his people is completely opposite or antithetical to our natural inclinations. Everything in this chapter needs to be commanded and taught because it's not the way that we would ever think to live if left to ourselves. So that's why on your outline I have the title for the lesson is The Believer's Unnatural Mode of Operation. This is how we should be operating, but it's unnatural. And then um, I have the introductory or kind of a summary statement underneath it. The manner of living that God desires for his people is antithetical, or you could write opposite, to our natural inclinations. So since the purpose of this lesson is to teach discipline three, I originally was going to skip over Romans 12, 1 to 2. But as I studied, I realized I just couldn't leave that out because it's like they're the starting blocks for the rest of the chapter. So they provide the starting point by giving us the worldview and the self-identity that's necessary for obeying the rest of the commands in the chapter. 
We need God's statement on the purpose and mission of our life because we'd get it wrong if left to our own understanding and wisdom. And I wanted to give you some examples of what we could come up with on our own. The meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose of life is to give it away. Does anybody know who said that? Pablo Picasso. It's not too bad. Um, There's some worse ones. Trying to define yourself is like trying to bite your own teeth. That was a philosopher named Alan Watts. I think he was kind of popular in the 60s. I don't know. Um, The most important thing is to enjoy your life. To be happy, it's all that matters. That's Audrey Hepburn. There is no greater gift you can give or receive than to honor your calling. It's why you were born and how you become most truly alive. That's Oprah Winfrey. You can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever. This approach has never let me down, and it has made all the difference in my life. Steve Jobs. Did someone say that? Whoa, okay. The purpose of life is to live it, to taste experience to the utmost, to reach out eagerly and without fear for newer and richer experience. Eleanor Roosevelt. And then lastly, here's a little nugget from Haim Gannat, who was a child psychologist and teacher. And he said, the search for a personal identity is the life task of a teenager. So those are some different human wisdom ideas of what the purpose of life is, the meaning of life. Um, Yeah, just kind of self-identity. So we have um, anything from just being happy, um, pursuing whatever makes you happy, um, loving yourself to actually thinking about others and giving, like there was a lot, there were some that I didn't read. Um, A lot of people are really into being simple, living simply and giving things away, only using what you really need. So some things get closer to truth than others, but anything that leaves out God and his plans from the purpose of human life is still 180 degrees off. So let's read Romans 12, 1 to 2, and I'm going to read from the New American Standard Version. Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So this is the starting point for all believers. Our life purpose and our self-identity is here in these two verses. Paul is making an appeal to the Roman believers to present their bodies to God as a sacrifice. And that should sound familiar to us since we've been in Romans 6 fairly recently on Sunday mornings. Paul there in Romans 6 exhorts the Romans to present themselves to God as, as those who have been brought from death to life and to present their members, parts of their bodies, to God as instruments for righteousness. This presenting is not a passive yielding. Um, There is actually an intentional action in this. And it's also not a surrender that would imply any sort of reluctance in presenting. But it's a positive action of giving. S. Lewis Johnson is one of the commentators that I read, and he said it's a free, happy presentation. So what could motivate this purposeful giving of oneself? It's right here in the verse. 
the mercies of God. These mercies have been explained in detail in chapters 1 to 11. Let me summarize them. First of all, God's wrath against our sin is a reality. Sin is a worldwide human problem, no matter how religious or non-religious a person is. We are all born hostile to God, seeking to worship ourselves or things that God has created or really anything other than the true God. Yet, God has provided a righteousness that overcomes our sin. It's a righteousness that is not from ourselves, thankfully, but one that's perfect and fully pleasing to God. It belongs to Jesus, who satisfied God's wrath against the very sins that we have committed and will commit. This righteousness is given to people who have faith in Jesus Christ as a satisfaction of God's wrath. Those who believe this are those who have been declared righteous by God, and now they're at peace with God. The wrath is gone. We've been united with Jesus into his death and resurrection, and we are no longer slaves to sin. We receive the Holy Spirit and are led by him in our thoughts and in our actions. We look forward to the day when our adoption and redemption are complete. And as we wait and live this life in this body of flesh, the Holy Spirit himself prays for us. We will never be separated from God's love. God is faithful to his promises, and he will keep all the promises that he's made to the nation of Israel, as well as the promises that he has made to his bride, the church. God's ways and judgments are inscrutable. No one has ever given a gift to him that he needed or given him counsel that he lacked. So in light of these truths and those mercies, Paul appeals to the Roman believers and to us to present our bodies to God as living sacrifices. When we came to Christ and cried out to God for mercy and forgiveness, trusting in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we came not holding on to anything. We were at the end of ourselves, having nothing to offer God. God was merciful, and he answered by giving us the righteousness of his perfect son. We were made new at that moment, and then we had something to offer. Not something to offer so that he would forgive us, but something to offer out of love and gratitude. We need to daily refresh our minds with the appropriate dedication of ourselves to God. We belong wholly to God. We are not only his children, but we are his servants. Our lives are no longer about ourselves, but they're given over to God to be used completely for his purpose. If we don't have that perspective on what our lives are for, we're not going to be able to live out the rest of Romans 12. Already, you can see in the first verse that we're confronted with a very unnatural way of living and thinking. To not live for yourself, but to be dedicated wholly to someone else is not natural. It requires a supernatural work, which is what Jesus calls being born again in John 3. Sorry, I'm going to turn something really fast, hopefully. Coffee should work. (laughs) It's like morning voice. I was telling Jamie, I hadn't even heard my voice yet this morning until I walked in and said, good morning. I'm like, whoa, I need to talk a little bit more. (laughs) Okay, so closely connected to presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice is a warning and a command to not be conformed to this world, but to be renewed in our minds so that we know God's will. To be conformed to something is to be pushed into a mold so that you take on the shape of what you're being pushed into. One commentator named Thomas Schreiner just made the observation that 
since um, being pushed into a mold is contrasted with having our minds renewed, the, the being pushed into a mold is not just an external mold, like where it just we look like the world or we act like the world, but it has to do with our thinking. Our thinking can be pushed into the mold of the world. And I wanted to give you a little description of what is meant by the word world. And I, really, I love this guy's description. It's um, a man named William Newell, and he wrote a commentary. It was published in 1938. And I noticed Michelle was so sweet to correct his grammar because yeah. <laughs> it's so weird. He wrote builded, and I have that in my notes. And I said something about it, and then I read it, and I was like, oh, it's already, it's like the way we say it, build, built. Okay, so let me read to you the quote. You guys have it um, right there. He says, we read that Cain went out from the presence of Jehovah and built a city which became filled with inventions, progress, music, arts, its whole end being to forget God, to get along without him. And ever since, Satan has developed this fatal world order with its philosophy, man's account of all things, but changing from time to time, its science, ever seeming to eliminate the supernatural, its government, with man exalting himself, its amusements, adapted to blot out realities from the mind, and its religion to soothe man's conscience and allay fears of judgment. I thought that was a really helpful description of what the world is and all the different spheres um, that, are, that make it up that we can easily kind of have our minds pushed into. Paul says we must not be pressed into this mold, but instead we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The word transformed is the very word we get metamorphosis from. It's also the same word as transfigured. So we all probably know about metamorphosis. It's the process by which a caterpillar cocoons and then it transforms into a butterfly. A caterpillar becomes something different than it was before. It went from crawling and inching along the ground to owning wings and being able to fly from place to place. So the same idea is encapsulated in the word transfigured. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on a mountain for the purpose of praying. And in Luke 9, it says that while Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. So it's the same word for transformed. And we refer to that um, situation as the transfiguration. Jesus was seen by those three disciples as he is in his glorified state and as we will see him in his kingdom. So we are to be metamorphosized and transfigured by our minds being renewed. And this reminds me again of 2 Corinthians 3.18. And the reason I say again is not because I've read this to you before, but every time I've been up front, like probably the last two weeks at Wellspring on Thursdays, I've read this verse. So it just keeps coming to mind, but it's appropriate um, at this point. Um, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from, from one degree of glory to another. So the renewal of our minds happens by looking at Christ in the word of God and meditating on, clinging to, knowing, studying, and obeying scripture. Paul tells the Romans and us that by not conforming to the world and by renewing our minds so that we're transformed, we will be able to prove God's will, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. The English Standard Version says discern instead of prove. It's the same idea. John MacArthur says that when a believer's mind has been renewed and transformed, he will be able to properly assess everything and to accept only that which conforms to the will of God. So it's not just 
Um, it's not like you're going to be able to know God's will before it happens. We're not talking about that. It's just being able to know, you know God's will so well from your mind being renewed by his word that when you're not in your Bible, you're going to recognize God's will. And that's what you will accept as good and pleasing and perfect. So we never need to be afraid of God's will, um, whether it's something that he's revealed that might seem hard to obey or something that's a non-revealed part of his will that we just figure out by experience. We don't need to be afraid of God's will because God's will is always good for us. Romans 8:28. God's will is acceptable to God. It means his own will, his own plans and purposes please him. That's why he came up with them. And God's will is perfect and leads to our perfecting. Newell wrote, it takes faith to surrender our wills. We must be brought to believe in our very heart that God's will is better for us than our own will. And as we once heard a man earnestly testify, if you can't trust one who died for you, whom can you trust? All right, let's move on to the next section, which is verses 3 to 8. In these verses, Paul exhorts the Roman believers to think soberly and accurately about their giftedness and their roles in the body of Christ. He also wants to motivate them to get busy, use their gifts in the church. So our starting point was verses 1 and 2. We're to be living sacrifices to God. That's the identity that we have as we reach out within the body of Christ to start using the gifts that have been entrusted to us. So the way a living sacrifice, meaning like you and I, the way we think about ourselves and our abilities um, and what we quote-unquote own is not a natural way of thinking, the way that we should be thinking about them. So let's read Romans 12, 3 to 8. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. Or he who teaches, in his teaching or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So Paul's first exhortation is that believers, every single one, not think more highly of himself than he ought to think. The fact that this is the first base to cover when talking about spiritual gifts means that we are all tempted to think too highly of ourselves. We naturally have a tendency to overestimate our own abilities or to overestimate our own importance or goodness. Rather, we need to think with sober judgment. Thinking soberly means that we're thinking with a sound or healthy or sane mind. So conceit, which is overestimating yourself, is evidence of insanity. Thinking too highly of ourselves means that we are out of our minds. It's the opposite. Paul writes that each believer should think sanely about himself, just as God has allotted to each believer a measure of faith. Now, what is this faith that God has given to each believer a specific amount of? Well, we know that we cannot please God without faith. We are saved by faith, and now we walk by faith. 
So we're believing in things that we don't see. We have hope in things that haven't happened yet. And in the same way that we have that sort of belief and trust in God, faith applies also to our different functions and gifting within the body. We actually have to exert faith in order to use the gifts that we've been given. Faith is, again, a gift from God, and God tells us that we all have been given a gift to use in the church. We don't receive a piece of paper or a document with our gift written out on it when we're first saved, but since God tells us that we have gifts, we believe him. The faith by which we employ our spiritual gift is also a gift from God. So he gives us everything that we need to use the gifts for his glory. Let me just read to you what John MacArthur wrote about this measure of faith. He said, Paul is not here referring to saving faith, which, every, which all the believers have already exercised. He is speaking of faithful stewardship, the kind and quantity of faith required to exercise our own particular gift. It is the faith through which the Lord uses his me- measured gift in us to the fullest. It encompasses all the sensitivity, capacity, and understanding we need to rightfully, or rightly and fully use our uniquely bestowed gift. Our Heavenly Father does not burden us with gifts for which he does not provide every spiritual, intellectual, physical, and emotional resource we need to successfully exercise them. I thought that was encouraging and really helpful in explaining what this measure of faith is. So we need to think with sober judgment, not forgetting that our gifts and abilities are just that. They're gifts from God. They don't come from ourselves. And even our ability and the faith to use them is a gift from God. Neither can we underestimate our gifts by either not believing that we have one or by thinking that they are not valuable. Think about yourself accurately, according to what God says. Paul uses the illustration of the physical body to explain how believers in Christ are to function together. We're familiar with this illustration, so much so that we refer to the church as the body of Christ. Our physical bodies have different parts. We have ears and eyes and feet and lungs and fingers and a mouth, and they all have different roles and a different um, part to play in the proper functioning of our body. So the hand is totally, it serves a totally different purpose than a lung. So it's shaped differently. It's located in a different spot on the body. Um, It moves differently and the hand would not really be helpful to us or as helpful to us if it tried to take on the shape of the lung and it went inside our chest and it tried to start inhaling oxygen and um, expelling carbon dioxide. And it wouldn't really make sense if we said, well, I'm not going to smoke for the sake of my hand, but we don't smoke for the sake of our lungs. And just as we need to wash our hands with soap and water, we wouldn't wash our lungs with soap and water. So you get the point. We treat things according to what their proper functioning is. So it's just a simple and a helpful illustration um, when we think about ourselves relating with, within the body of Christ. So Paul points out that the Roman believers were members of each other. In the same way, the members of Grace Bible Church are all connected to each other to form a complete body. The implication is that we should be closely connected to one another. We are not to be disconnected living our walk with Christ out on our own individually. Notice that, uh, sorry, so we're one body in Christ, but we each have differing gifts according to the grace given to us. 
Now, this is not an exhaustive list on the spiritual gifts that we have here. So I've listed for you 2 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, and Ephesians 4, and those are also not exhaustive lists either. Um, They all do speak about spiritual gifting, and some of them have crossover with this one. There's similar ones, and some have some extras and some different ones. Um, And then I have Matthew 25 also listed, so that you can... If you want to go back through and, and just kind of study on your own a little bit more about spiritual gifts, Matthew 25 is helpful because it just contains the parable of the talents, um, and that just illustrates the importance of using what you've been given by God. The point of the parable is faithfulness, um, just that Christians must be faithful with the abilities and the time and the resources that God has given them. So we really could make a full lesson on just the spiritual gifts, However, it does seem like, just from reading all the other passages on spiritual gifts, that it's not necessarily something that we're supposed to find a tight little box and put ourselves in it and find our label. That's not really the point. It doesn't seem of any of the passages on spiritual gifts. So um, we're just kind of going to run through them and and think about them. Um, I thought it was also interesting that in these lists of spiritual gifts, there are attitudes or actions that Christians and other passages, all Christians, are supposed to have. So, for example, like all of us should be able to exhort a fellow believer, but exhortations listed in one of the spiritual gifts, uh, as one of the spiritual gifts. So it seems that God probably gives some people a greater ability in that area, even though everyone should be able to do it. Um, here's, oh, John MacArthur gave a good illustration, I thought, of how spiritual gifting we don't need to necessarily find a specific tight little box to put ourselves in. He said um, the spiritual gifts are kind of like paint on an artist's paint palette. So there's basic colors on here, and then the artist will take um, different colors and mix them together so that on his canvas, whatever he's painting has its own specific shade. It's been mixed together from things that are basic. And I think his idea, he was saying, God gives us all um, varying degrees of gifts, and then we come out totally uniquely gifted, which is so neat to think about. None of us are exactly like, like he said, we're almost like spiritual snowflakes, which is pretty cool. So I'm going to just give you um, descriptions of the gifts, and then I'm going to give you a little checklist that hopefully will just kind of be an aid to you in maybe discerning what gifts have been given to you. So the first gift that Paul lists is the gift of prophecy. Prophecy is proclaiming direct revelation from God. There were Old and New Testament prophets. These people spoke God's word that had not yet been recorded, and sometimes they told about future events that would happen. Secondly, Paul then says, if you have the gift of service, then use the faith or the grace that you've been allotted to serve. Service means literally through dust. So the idea is something low, humble, um, you're just serving practically. Um, It has the idea of waiting tables even. And the word used for service here is what the term deacon comes from. So this is kind of a broad and a general idea of serving and helping in practical ways wherever and however help is needed within the body. And that's going to probably, I would say, like most of the people that are gifted, that's probably going to be where we serve and how we help. And really it could be anything from helping with whatever program your child's in, whether it's like just bringing food or helping clean up or even um, teaching. Um, I think that is still kind of a service 
in that area, although teaching is its own gift. But um, you can serve in practical ways in things that, just where there's a need, something lacking. Okay, um, thirdly is teaching. Teaching is um, pretty straightforward. It means to be able to interpret and present God's truth understandably. The gift of teaching carries the idea of a person who has been illumined as he studies God's revealed word, and then he communicates it to God's people. And Priscilla and Aquila with Apollos could even be an example of teaching. So that was not a formal teaching, it was informal, but they were still bringing someone along teaching them God's word. And another commentator listed anything from teaching Sunday school to a Bible college teacher or a seminary professor. Um, yeah. So then next, Paul lists exhortation. Exhortation is similar to teaching because you're dealing with God's word and bringing it to bear or to light. But exhortation has, it's different from teaching in the sense that there's a concrete situation that you're honing in on, a specific situation probably in one person's life. So teaching is going to be a little more broad in, ter in terms of application. You're taking God's word and either teaching a section or teaching a topic. But exhortation is going to hone in and um, appeal to another person's will so that they are um, just understanding God's word on whatever situation they're going through. And at the same time, you need to remember that as you're appealing to someone's will, it's the Holy Spirit who's able to persuade. Here's what Haldane wrote about exhortation. He said, exhortation is to excite to duty and to dissuade from sin. So some people were saying, sometimes you're going to be doing a lot of encouraging if you're exhorting, and then sometimes it could just be a lot of um, reproving and bringing to light scripture um, in, in light of someone's situation. So next Paul says, he talks about giving. He says to give with liberality. This giving is sharing and imparting that which is one's own. It is to be done with liberality, which you could also translate the word simplicity, because the root of the word is singleness, meaning that giving should be done with single-mindedness. Giving to others cannot be mixed with ulterior motives or looking for praise or any sort of payback with honor or recognition, and neither should you have any sort of kind of secret reluctance in giving, kind of, yeah, not full-hearted <laughs> wanting to give. Paul then says, he who leads with diligence. Leading has the basic idea of standing before others. So I thought it was interesting that the word um, lead, this word for lead, is not used in scripture for government leaders or any sort of government roles. It's always talked about in terms of leading within a family or leading within the church. So this gifting would include, obviously, the role of pastor, elder, and deacons who lead the church and who have been faithfully leading their families, but it's not limited to the men in those roles. It can show up in the ability to oversee, to organize, to administrate. If you can make something happen, if that's kind of the way you're gifted, or if you have the ability to bring people together, it could be that you have the gift of leadership. And if you have the gift of leadership, it says to use this gift, um, lead with diligence. So that has the idea of doing this with zeal and earnestness, even a sense of haste. So don't be idle in possession of this gift. And the last gift that Paul mentions is mercy. 
He says, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Mercy is having pity, compassion, maybe a special preoccupation toward people in misery, um, whether it's poor, um, downtrodden, imprisoned, really anybody who's had it rough. The gift of mercy is to be employed with cheerfulness. This is what um, Newell wrote about doing, showing mercy with cheerfulness. The joyfulness of spirit in which one helps another is often of more real blessing than the help itself. All right, so now I'm going to give you this little tool to help you maybe think rightly about where you should be serving or how you should be serving in the body. And I'm totally taking this, borrowing it from um, a sermon I listened to by John MacArthur. It's on Grace to You if you want to listen. It's a whole series on the spiritual gifts. Um, This is part one. I think it's called, I have it down, Ministry of Spiritual Gifts. Um, Anyway, so he gives this little checklist, and there's nine items in this checklist. All right, number one, present yourself a living sacrifice. It's the first step. So we're just not going to be useful or as useful as we can be without being fully dedicated to living for God. Number two, know that you are gifted. Believe what God says through Paul and through Peter, that each and every believer has been given a certain gift of God's grace to be employed in service to him. Number three, pray for wisdom. You can even just jot down James 4. It's pretty self-explanatory. Pray for wisdom. Number four, he said, seek nothing. And I think what he means by that is that since God has already sovereignly assigned or given gifts of grace, you don't need to necessarily force something or try to set your heart on something that may or may not be for you. But don't let that be discouraging because here's number five is almost like a, it offsets it a little bit, but it helps you. He said five, um, examine your heart's desire. So you can ask yourself and think about what is it that I have a desire to do? And that's probably going to be helpful in figuring out how God's gifted you. And then number six, seek confirmation. Um, Listen to what other godly people have to say about your abilities and your gifting. And then seven, look for the blessing of God. Do you see fruit when you serve um, in a specific area? And is there joy as you serve? And then number eight, serve with your whole heart. So even if you're not necessarily seeing fruit or you're not necessarily having joy, that doesn't mean stop doing what you're doing. But do serve with your whole heart. Just be completely abandoned to whatever it is that's before you, um, just to be faithful with it. And then nine, um, when you think you begin to see what it is, go for it. And maybe a better word, a uh, better thing to say is just cultivate the gift. As it becomes obvious to you what it might be, work at it and do what you can to improve and be faithful with it. And then here's a little disclaimer, because after he gave that list, he said, you could go through this and really find it impossible to label your spiritual gift, but hopefully you're going to have a little bit more of a general idea of what you should be doing, what you're able to do. And we have to remember as we look around at each other that even those of us who have similar gifts to each other, we're going to use them so differently, and we're going to look really different. 
So the fleshing out of similar gifts will be unique to each person. I mean, you, even just this summer, just seeing like those churches, um, how there's obviously their pastors have the gift of teaching. And to see how that's fleshed out, it just comes out differently because it's a different person that God's made. And it's great. It's okay. And it's good that it's different. So I hope this only makes you eager to serve God with your gift, and I hope that you're humbled and encouraged that you do indeed have a gift, and it's important and beneficial. So I'm going to close this section reading to you um, a quote by Robert Haldane, and I can't remember. I think this one's in there. I don't have it in front of me. But he said, Riches and natural eloquence are gifts, as well as the miraculous ability to speak languages not previously learned. Christians, then, should consider everything they possess as a gift bestowed by God, which they should cultivate and use to his glory, and for which they are accountable. If a Christian misspent his money, his time, his abilities, his influence, or any talent which God has conferred on him, he is not misspending his own, but is misspending what is entrusted to him by God. Sorry. I'm going to silence this. Okay, let's move on to the third section. Last time you guys were here, um, Eric Martin taught on the one another's, and I'm assuming he said very similar things to you that he said to us, but he said that one one another could cover all of them, and that was love one another. So the same is true with this list of commands that we're about to look at in Romans 12. The first command is that we need to love sincerely, love without hypocrisy, and the rest of the passage just kind of fills in what it looks like to love people in the body of Christ, as well as people outside the body of Christ, including people that we would have to label as enemies. So the third section is titled, The Good Works, Which God Has Prepared for Us to Walk In, An Unnatural Way of Loving. So I stole that completely from Ephesians 2, which you probably recognized. Um, Every believer has been saved from God's wrath. We've been saved unto God, and we've been saved in order to honor God. God has prepared good works for all of his children to walk in, and Romans 12 is certainly not the list of all of the good works that we have to walk in, but it clearly explains some of the good works that we get to walk in. So let's read verses 9 to the end of the chapter, 21, and dig in. Paul says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
So first, Paul says that love must be without hypocrisy. Or in the ESV, it says love must be genuine. This is not a love that consists mostly of kind words or affectionate words. It is a love of substance. It's easier to talk love than to do love. D.L. Moody said we don't want to be talking cream and living skim milk. Love, however, is not just about actions either. There must be genuine affection in our hearts for one another in order for it to be sincere and genuine and without hypocrisy. Genuine love is selfless, it's self-giving, it's patient, kind, it believes the best, it's humble, truth-loving, it's not jealous, and it's not boastful. So in short, true love is a reflection of God's love. If God has loved others and saved them as he has loved and saved us, we can and must love them too. That's what S. Lewis Johnson wrote. This love is a love that also has the ability to hate. And that sounds strange, but the next phrase that Paul commands is that we must abhor what is evil. And that fits right in with the description of love that Paul gives to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13. He said, love does not rejoice in evil or in unrighteousness. So this means we're not just going to avoid doing evil or thinking what's evil and sinful, but we need to dislike and even hate things that are evil, things that are sinful. And then the converse is true as well. We are to cling to and hold fast to what is good. So our inner person needs to be in line with our outer person. I would guess most of us in this room probably in our behavior generally refrain from evil and do what is good. But it goes further than that. Our inner person needs to be lined up with it so that we actually are loving what God loves and hating what God hates. And that's how our love for one another can be genuine and without hypocrisy. And again, that is really unnatural. This type of love is only possible for one who's been given a new nature. And I, this is where I feel bad because I feel like we are seriously flying at this point. But hopefully it's helpful. Just the little pieces I'll, I'll draw out. Verse 10 says to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, to give preference to one another. So this is one of the one another's Eric taught about um, last wellspring. And he said it's like Paul couldn't use the word love enough in that verse. It's basically saying we are to lovingly love one another with brotherly love. And Paul uses a word for love that is in reference to a natural or a familial love that somebody has for their natural um physical family members. Part of God's common grace to all people is that natural love that's experienced between a parent and a child or siblings or any sort of extended family. It is God's kindness that we can give and receive this natural love to some extent, even um, as unbelievers. Well, the love that we have for one another that's um, in our families, that's strong, the love it's compared to the love that we should have within the spiritual family in the body of christ we are commanded to love each other with love that we have towards our natural family and then we are to show preference to one another and to do that in honor so giving preference is putting someone else before yourself and here's a helpful little definition for what it means to honor in fact i like how the esv says that i think it's um outdo each other in showing honor. Does someone's version say that? Um, Anyway, so I I like that one too. But here's what it means to honor. To honor is to, oh wait, let me start with what it's not first. To honor is not to flatter, 
to give hypocritical praise in hope of having the compliment returned or of gaining favor with the one honored. To honor is to show genuine appreciation and admiration for one another in the family of God. We are to be quick to show respect, quick to acknowledge the accomplishments of others, quick to demonstrate genuine love by not being jealous or envious, which have no part in love. Yes, the first part. Okay, to honor is not to flatter, to give hypocritical praise in hope of having the compliment returned or of gaining favor with the one honored. To honor is to show genuine appreciation and admiration for one another in the family of God. We are to be quick to show respect, quick to acknowledge the accomplishments of others, quick to demonstrate genuine love by not being jealous or envious, which have no part in love. And that was MacArthur. I don't know if I said who wrote that. Okay, and then moving on to verse 11, there's a triplet of commands in verse 11. Paul says that we should not be lagging behind in diligence. We should be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So this diligence and fervency have to do with serving God. This is not just a general diligence, like a good work ethic towards all things, but it's specifically honed in on how we serve God. S. Lewis Johnson wrote, We may be diligent in our work, spending our waking hours working hard, going to bed with our minds buzzing with plans for our work, but devote little time to being diligent in service to God. And then regarding fervency, he wrote, Those who understand God's gracious salvation must be fervent in spirit. And if we are not, we must go over again those mercies so wonderfully expounded in Romans 1 to 11. If we find we are lacking in our diligence or find that we're lacking in our fervency, um, it would only benefit it, us to go back to the cross, to go back to meditating on the gospel and thinking about the mercies of God. We don't want to waste our time or our lives by being lazy in our service or by being detached and dry in our passion for serving. Paul told the Galatians that as they had opportunity to not waste them, but to do good to all people, and especially to do good to those who are in the household of faith. That's Galatians 6.10. Verse 12 contains another triplet of commands, and these are personal and individual good works. And these absolutely have an impact on our relationships, but they don't fit neatly into discipline three, into that category. So we're not going to spend a lot of time at all on this. Um, Paul just says, though, rejoice in hope. All of us should be rejoicing in hope. We should be persevering in tribulation, and we should be devoted um, in prayer. And those are all ways in which a believer must be shepherding her heart. So this is only going to make our connections between um, others in the body of Christ stronger and sweeter if we are doing those. And then I will share one little nugget on hope and just what hope is. Hope is founded on faith and faith on the divine testimony. Hope respects what God has said in his word. Were this hope kept in lively exercise, it would raise believers above the fear of man and a concern for the honors of this world. Hope soothes the bitterness of affliction, and in prosperity it raises our affections, disengaging us from the love of this world. I thought that was so helpful to think about hope in that way, in light of um, if we were putting it, if we were exercising it, if we were putting it into practice in um, affliction and in prosperity. In affliction, it, it's soothing and it helps us um, not be bitter. And then in prosperity, it raises our eyes up off this earth 
to what's truly important and disengages our, our affections from being fully um, immersed in this world. Okay, so that's what it means to rejoice in hope. Or, yeah, in hope. Next, Paul tells the Romans to contribute to the needs of the saints and to practice hospitality. The believers were to help meet physical needs for those in the body of Christ that needed help. We should supply to our brothers what is lacking as if we were caring for ourselves. In the eyes of society, we rightfully own certain things, but before the Lord, we own nothing. We are simply stewards of what he has blessed us with. And one of our most important responsibilities as his stewards is using our personal resources to contribute to the needs of the saints, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Then I like how the ESV says that we should seek to show hospitality. Um, it captures the idea of pursuing and practicing hospitality. This is not just entertaining our family and our friends, but it's going out of our way to be stranger lovers. That's what hospitality means, to love strangers. And in the first century, it really would have been a blessing for a believer to be able to stay at someone's house, either overnight or to have a meal um, when they were traveling, even if they didn't know that person, just because of the danger and probably the sinful settings that some of those places would have been in. Um, so hospitality could look actually very similar to that now, um, but it also may look a little bit different. Um, I was just thinking, really, it just means that we're friendly and welcoming to people that we don't know. And that would mean, even on a Sunday morning, maybe just being intentional about seeking to meet someone that is new, either someone that's moving here or um, who is just traveling and is just coming to our church that Sunday, or um, even someone that lives here, but they're new to our church, new to our fellowship. Um, just being ready to be pursuing that thinking about, I want to meet people, I want to show love to people that I don't know. Maybe even um, kind of preparing food, being ready to like have someone over or take someone out for, for lunch afterwards. There's a lot of ways to be creative and think about how we can love others that we don't know. And then, okay, I think we're going to move on. Verse 14 is next. It's really simple to understand. All believers are to bless anyone who persecutes them and to not curse them. There's no mixture in this, meaning we cannot pronounce a blessing or say something good about a person that's persecuting us and then also say bad things about them and wish for their demise. So the only option is blessing them. We don't have the option of cursing, cursing them. MacArthur says to truly bless those who persecute us is to treat them as if they were our friends. So as easy as it is to understand this verse, it's not as easy to practice. And again, we see that the Christian life and the good works that we are to walk in are not natural. They're not humanly natural, but they're the exact opposite of what comes to our um, human nature. So only by having a new nature and with the help of the Holy Spirit are we going to be able to genuinely wish the best for those who persecute us. Paul continues on in verse 15 to say, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We probably understand this verse pretty well. It's obviously it's a pretty self-evident what to do. When we see someone affected by tragedy, we can put ourselves in their shoes and fear, feel sorrow along with them. Jesus did this with Martha and Mary over Lazarus when he died. And then Jeremiah and Jesus also kind of gave us a, an example of weeping over people who should have wept but didn't. So you think about Jeremiah and his ministry. He wept over sinful Israel, and Israel wasn't really 
affected by their own sin, that he actually loved them enough that he would weep over them when they should have been weeping as well. Jesus did the same thing over sinful Jerusalem. Now, it may be a little bit harder to rejoice with those who rejoice because our jealousy can get in the way. John MacArthur writes, At first thought, that principle would seem easy to follow, but when another person's blessing and happiness is at our expense, or when their favored circumstances or notable accomplishments make ours seem barren and dull, the flesh does not lead us to rejoice, but tempts us to resent. So we want to be genuine in our weeping and in our rejoicing with others. And then verse 16, it has four commands, and these commands are specifically for the body of Christ relationships. It says, be of the same mind toward one another, do not be haughty in mind, associate with the lowly, and do not be wise in your own eyes. This verse has to do with personal favoritism or showing partiality. There's no partiality with God. Before God, it doesn't matter what race or gender, social standing, or economic class a person's in. Neither should it matter to us in terms of how we treat another believer. James had to address this type of mistreatment in um, some of the churches that he wrote to in his epistle. Some of the churches were showing greater honor to their wealthy members and treating the poor members with dishonor. So not only should we think about um, each other as equals before God, but Paul actually says we need to go out of our way and seek, seek to associate with the lowly. And the lowly, um, that term, it really means people that are low on the social or economic scale. It's not um, necessarily like... um, meekness and spirit and like some that's low like that way it really means like low like what other people society would say is low jesus told the pharisees and his disciples when he was on earth to be careful to not invite their friends or their brothers or their rich neighbors to their parties so that they would be repaid by them instead they should invite the lame the poor the blind really anyone that was going to be unable to repay them that's who they should invite to their dinner parties or luncheons, I think is what it said. And those who show this kind of hospitality and love and service are going to be repaid not by men, but by God in his kingdom of heaven. So we want to be repaid by God. That should be our motive, not be repaid by men. Not being wise in one's own eyes has to do with thinking that you are intellectually superior to others. So, and again, kind of self-explanatory, There is just no aristocracy in the church, whether you think of it as a social aristocracy or an intellectual aristocracy. Really, nobody is too cool, too smart, too rich to associate with anyone else in the body of Christ. And this just requires humility and an accurate self-perception. Okay, and then we're just going to tackle kind of the rest of this in a big chunk. Although I think I did list out certain things for each verse. But the rest of this chapter has to do with how we, what it looks like to love one's enemies. Verse 17 says that we must not pay back evil for evil to anyone. So, I mean, this could include someone in the body of Christ, absolutely. Um, You're not going to pay back someone evil for evil in the body. Um, So it could kind of cross over. But it's for anyone that's doing evil to you. That could include anything from having um, someone taking things that belong to you. Um, to someone just speaking ill of you or someone manipulating a situation that is to your hurt. Just really any sort of mistreatment is what is meant by this type of repaying evil for evil. 
Robert Haldane writes, it is natural to every man to return evil for evil. Those of the most indolent and passive dispositions are not without feelings of revenge. Nothing but the faith of Christ will enable any man to overcome this disposition. But faith will overcome it, and every man who believes in Christ must labor to overcome it in his heart as well as in his practice. So again, it goes back to the heart. Again, we're talking about doing what's good on the outside, and um, you know, we, we can make those kind of right choices, maybe even to not repay evil for evil, but we want to make sure it's true in our heart as well that we're not even wishing evil on someone else that did evil to us. Then Paul says we need to respect what is right in the sight of all men. And that means we're going to just live in a way that we are not needlessly offending somebody else. That may mean that you do things that you don't necessarily have a conviction about, or maybe it's even something that you don't find to be that important, but you go ahead and do it so that you're not being offensive to someone else. And that takes a lot of humility and actually thoughtfulness too. Then Paul exhorts believers to be at peace with all men as far as it depends upon you or as it depends upon them. Seek to be at peace with everyone as long as you're not compromising God's truth, and, but you do need to seek to reconcile relationships. So it's not always possible this side of heaven to be at peace in every relationship, but as much as you are able to make things right, to be humble, confessing your sin in the relationship, seeking to understand and amend any offense, do it. One of the commentators just noted that we all have different dispositions. So some of us are going to be a little bit quicker to be contentious, and then others of us are going to be a little bit more selfishly desiring the favor of, of men. So it could look like one person's more of a peacemaker, but it could actually be at the cost of God's word. So we do need to be willing to be unpopular um, for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of making the gospel clear. But at the same time, we don't want to be intentionally offensive, and we need to seek to um, reconcile and to be at peace with everyone as much as it depends upon you. Um, and, but at the same time, not at the cost of God's truth. Verse 19 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is one of those eight statements of fact that I talked about at the beginning. I haven't pointed all of them out, but this is just one fact. God owns something. Something belongs to him and to him alone, and that something is vengeance. We are at no time, by no means, never to take revenge on anyone who wrongs us. Now, this does not have to do with legal or civil consequences to wrongs done. That, um, this has to do with exacting punishment in a personal nature, and that kind of punishment belongs only to God. Newell writes, God's vengeance must require that infinite knowledge of conditions, of motives, of results upon others, which God, the just judge, alone possesses. So God, because he's infinite in his knowledge, because he is, what we say, omniscient, he knows everything, he is the only one qualified to even deal with vengeance or any sort of revenge or payback. It's only natural to repay evil for evil and to seek to avenge yourself when you've been wronged. Um, the way that we're born, that's just very natural to us. Um, our culture even kind of admires somebody who pays back or stands up for themselves, whether it be um, on Twitter or in traffic or maybe in a financial situation, someone that's just going to stand up for themselves and, and get someone back. Sometimes our culture admires that and thinks that's a, 
a good way to interact with each other. However, we will be the most happy, we will be happiest when we entrust ourselves to God's care for us and leave the vengeance to him. It honors God because it is actually not natural, humanly. So not only are we to re- refrain from revenge, but we are to pursue doing good to our enemies and to those who wrong us. Paul quotes from Proverbs 25, 21 to 22, when he talks about um, feeding your enemy if he's hungry and giving him something to drink if he's thirsty. So doing good to one's enemies was prescribed to God's people in the Old Testament. MacArthur writes, the point here is that when we love our enemies and genuinely seek to meet his or their needs, we shame them for their hatred. And this takes a new heart in order to obey this with sincerity. We have as our ultimate example to look to for help, um, Jesus. He did not revile in return when he was reviled, and he asked for and desired that his executors be forgiven for what they were doing to him. And it's possible for us to follow in his footsteps. We see that example in Stephen, who prayed the same way when he was killed at the hands of his fellow Jews. So this feeding and um, giving drink, it just means doing good, meeting their needs. The chapter concludes with two commands, and that's in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We must not let other people's evil overcome or overwhelm us. And neither can we let our own evil overcome us so that we act according to our flesh. We should overwhelm our enemies with goodness. S. Lewis Johnson wrote, if we treat an enemy well, we may gain a friend. That would be so cool. That would be like just the best scenario possible. That God would be pleased to use our kindness, our love, and our dependence upon him for all those things to actually change our enemy's heart and to draw him to God. Okay, so that was a long list of commands. These commands are a window into God's character. His commands show us what he prizes, and they show us what pleases him. And they show us how he desires for us to walk. His commands are for our good, they're for his glory, and they're for our happiness. They're not burdensome. Romans 12 is the mode of operation for all believers. Our starting point is presenting ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, And then we are to employ the gifts of grace that he's generously bestowed on each of us when he saved us. And then before he saved us, he had already prepared good works for us to walk in. So be encouraged that God has not only graciously provided righteousness and forgiveness for you, um, but you have a vital function in the body of Christ. You've been given a gift for ministering to others. And you've also been charged to love deeply and sincerely your brothers and sisters in Christ. So let's pray, and then do I still have time to do the disciplines? Do you want me to still do that, or should we? Okay, all right. Let's just pray just regarding this lesson, and then I will um, briefly go over the disciplines with you before we do discussion groups. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how you reveal yourself to us and how um, we can look at commands and not feel overwhelmed, although we can feel very convicted. Um, God, I pray that we would only feel um, hopeful and be glad for the fact that we get to see what your character is like, because you are so different than us, and you are so different than the world that we live and breathe in. 
And God, I just ask that your commands would, first of all, cause us just to look up and to see your character, to see um, what you love and what you are like, and then to worship you. And God, I do pray that you would help um, all of us in this room to be steadfast in our resolve to um, be a living sacrifice for you and to use the gifts that you've given to each of us. God, it's amazing that you would use us to do your work and um, you tell us that you've given us each gifts. And God, we need to believe that and we want to put them into practice. And God, I pray that there would just be clarity and um, that this would only be helpful to the women here so that they can serve the body of Christ and serve you um, well with what they've been given. And God, I just pray that we would be women that are characterized by love for each other, love that's sincere and genuine, um, truly weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice and rejoicing in the things that you've given to others and other people's accomplishments or the, um, the ways that you're using them. Um, and then to care for those um, that are in need and to love selflessly and to lay down our lives for each other. And God, I pray that we'd also be characterized um, as women who love our enemies, who fully entrust ourselves to you and to your care for us and um, don't feel or don't believe that we need to um, exact any sort of revenge or punishment on people that um, mistreat us. God, we pray this um, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so take out your notebooks. And on the back, we will just review a little bit um, why we get together every other Saturday or every other Thursday. Um, if I take, is it okay? All right. Could I just have four people read verses so that you don't have to always hear my voice? If someone could read 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that would be great. And then if someone else could look up 1 Timothy 4, 16. 1 Timothy 4, 16. 2 Timothy, oh, I can hardly read this, 3, 15. Oh, no, no, wait, first. 2 Timothy 1, 5. And then, Melissa, will you also do 2 Timothy 3, 15? It goes together. You can tell that I've been reading where I've been reading. <laughs> I've been in First and Second Timothy. And then the last one, if someone could look up Acts 9, 36 to 39. Anyone? Corey, thank you. Acts 9, Acts 9, 36 to 39. Okay. The very first one, sorry. Second uh, Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All right, so first of all, our purpose for Wellspring, it is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Allie, will you read your verse, 2 Timothy 3? At my, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all who heard me, may it, be, may it not be counted against them. I think, is that 2 Timothy 3, 16? 11, 4. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know. It seemed odd to me, too. I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> There we go. <laughs> is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Yes. 
So Paul's talking to Timothy, and he's just saying, Scripture is profitable for so many things. It equips us. This ministry, Wellspring, is an equipping ministry. And I, I love that in our small group so often, um, so many of us are talking about things that we're le- learning here at Wellspring and things that we're hearing on Sunday because God's word is what equips us to do ministry. So this is an equipping ministry, and that's why the word of God is central in this ministry. Then discipline one is our hearts. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. And who had First Timothy 4, 16? Okay, Diane. I did. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Okay, and again, that is Paul talking to Timothy, and he's saying, keep watch on yourself and keep watch on your teaching. It's just so neat that Paul is saying to Timothy, who's a um, young, kind of like his, who he's been discipling, his uh, pastor, and he needs to not just keep an eye on God's word and studying, but he needs to keep an eye on himself. That's the same idea of shepherding your heart, keeping an eye on your heart and how you're doing with the Lord. And then discipline two is the home. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. And then, Melissa, do you, can you read those two verses? When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I have persuaded is in you also. And yes. And that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are known known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Yes. So, Timothy had a mom and a grandma who was saved. And um, he was obviously taught God's word from the time he was little. Um, I just thought it was so neat that God chose to save this line. Like, we got to see. There's a, a family here who one woman loved the Lord and was saved and followed him. And then her daughter she was probably faithful. We don't know, but she was probably faithful to teach her daughter scripture. And then this daughter taught Timothy um, scripture. Just a neat example of faithfulness within the home. And God used that to save those people. And then discipline three, ministry. With a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church in every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. And then I have Acts 9. Oh, yes, Corey. 36, right? Yes, 36 to 39. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of, full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in her an upper room. Since Lydia was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men him, urging him, please come with, to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the windows, <laughs> all the widows, <laughs> stood, stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while he was with them. Yeah, and I love the example of Tabitha or Dorcas, um, however you want to call her. Um, just her faithfulness and how she was full of good works and she um, loved these women and took care of them and when she was gone 
she was very missed because of um, the way that she had lived out um, ministry with these women. She obviously had some sort of gifting for making clothes, so um, she used that um, to serve others. That was a good example. All right, I think that's it.